0: me if you would to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea, begin reading in verse 1, it is after the book of Daniel, the first of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1 you got to say so. And the word of the Lord says this. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God, we love you. and We thank you today for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. Jesus, we just thank you so much because you have reminded us this morning that you are the overcomer, my God. You have reminded us this morning, my God, that your love conquers all things. You have reminded us this morning, Lord God, that there is no God who is like you. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. We are grateful, God, at the opportunity and the privilege that we have to hear your word, Lord Jesus. And we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to our hearts today. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the church. And may we not just be passive hearers of your word, but may we be active doers of your word. God be glorified in these next few moments. May I decrease and may you increase. In Jesus' good name, someone said. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so I want us to walk through the book of Hosea. A few reasons is because the book of Hosea is a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament that is pretty amazing. Um, The book of Hosea is part of, and I say part of, it's part of the love story between God and his covenant people that is meant to be an example to us for the magnitude and purity of God's love for his children and his bride. And so in the book of Hosea, you'll find two things that God's love is compared to or used in an example. And one of them is as children. He speaks to children, and we'll see that as we walk through this book. And he also speaks as to a bride. And in the New Testament, we see the same things. Where we're called the children of God, and we're also called the bride of Christ. And so the reason why I wanted to go through the book of Isaiah—I mean Hosea is because... As we went through this last series that I did when I was talking about what does love have to do with it, I began to talk about Hosea probably in the first message that I preached. But then um, as I continued to pray and seek the Lord, I was kind of, you know, torn between where does he want me to go next? And I, and I was sitting down in our, in our connect group and if, if, I don't see, is George here? I don't see George. Anyway, he's not here, but he brought it up. He was talking about him seeing the movie and it was right there that the Holy Spirit was like, that's what I want you to deal with. And I was like, okay. So I didn't see the movie, but I read the book. Amen? glory to God. And so, you know, from what I heard, the book is better always, right, than the movie. I don't know. I'm just saying. But um, I'm, I'm going to see the movie after I finish preaching, and we'll see. I'll, I'll tell you if it was better. But anyway, um, the book of Hosea is an amazing book for us, because it gives us this understanding of God's love. Now, there's a couple of things that you'll notice. First of all, you didn't get a handout, and that is my fault. It is because I did not get the idea to Lewis on time, so he could make the, um, the outline um, for me. So, you're going to write down some questions. Amen. Glory to God. I know you were, you we were hoping we were going to hand you paper when you walked in the door. That didn't happen, all right? So just write some notes down, please. Ask a neighbor, do you got some paper? Glory to God. I got a pen. If you got to borrow a pen, um, we're just going to do like three things. There's going to be three questions. The first question is going to be the most simple one. It's the most practical one. And it is, what is the one thing that you got out of the message? So that's an important one that you're going to discuss and connect. The second thing that I want you to do is, if you're willing, I don't want to force anyone to talk and connect, okay? But you know that you should be talking in your connect groups, amen? Amen, Amen. glory to God. You should be open in your mouth, you should be communicating. And if you would be willing and if you would be desirous to do so, we want to hear your story of how Jesus saved you, Amen? 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 We want to hear your story. We want to hear when you came to know him. And when I say we want to hear your story, we don't want you to take all of connect time, Amen? What we want is we want the five-minute version. I know that some of you got like, Bishop, that's not long enough. Listen, you need to make it that, that, that short, okay? Just say you were real heathen, amen. <laughs> I really was lost, and now I found that love, <laughs> okay? We want, we want to hear that because this is a good picture and a good time. And then the last question is the one that I will ask you at the end, and you can also deal with this, and it is, are you overwhelmed that God shows you by grace? Two-part question. Does your devotion to him agree with your answer? Are you overwhelmed that God chose you by grace? And does your devotion to him agree with your answer? So if you say, yes, I'm overwhelmed that God saved me by grace. I'm overwhelmed that he chose me. But you don't live for him, then you're lying to yourself. You say, no, I'm not overwhelmed, but you walk in the fear of the Lord. You may not think that you're overwhelmed, but something has happened inside of your heart. And so when we look at the book of Hosea, as I said, this is a, this is a love story. It's part of the love story. I love um, one, one of the things that I heard a Bible teacher talk about. is the one that is actually teaching Bible in my daughter's school for the 6th and 7th grade, I believe. Um, all, maybe all of middle school. But this teacher said this year his goal is to walk the children from Genesis to Revelation so they can understand the Bible as one story. So they could understand the Bible as one story from Genesis to Revelation. See, a lot of times, because we have different books and we have different places where we go, we think for some reason that the story is, 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 is different, but it is one story through and through. When you look through um, when you look through your Bible, when you go home, you can YouTube this. I was going to put it up today, but um, I, I didn't fit it in where I thought it would go. But there's a video, and you can just go, um, and when you YouTube, just say, um, Jesus in all the books of the Bible, and there's this little kid, he's like, I don't know, he's probably like 10 years old or something like that, and he's in Salem, Beth- Salem Baptist Church, I believe it is, and he goes through the books of the Bible, and he begins to tell you Jesus in every single book of the Bible, and then at the end, he begins to speak, and he just had me crying, I was bawling, because it's so amazing to realize that Jesus is there in the beginning, he is there at the end, he's there through everything. And it is all about God trying to redeem us to himself. It is all about God. When we look at the word of God, it is about him trying to deliver us and set us free. Let me tell you one of the worst things that you can do is look at your Bible as a a place to get principles for living rather than the place to find salvation for life. Because what happens is you will look at the Bible and you will find these principles for living and you will find moral standards and you will become a moralist. You will become a person who looks at their life and says, you know what, I live by those morals and you will feel good about yourself. And then the other thing that will happen is you will fail in some points of your morality and then you will feel condemned. And the question is, should I feel good about myself or should I feel good about Jesus? The question is, should I feel bad about myself or should I trust what Jesus has done and that way I don't have to walk in condemnation? Well, the answer is, I should feel good about Jesus. I should rejoice that I am his prized creation. I should be able to do those things. But if I only look at the Bible and see it as principles for living, then what happens is I miss the whole story. I miss what God is trying to do, which is to show me his power of redemption. And in the book of Hosea, we will look at this story and we'll see the way that God unfolds this. I want to give you some history. If you're taking notes, this might be good for you to write down so you'll know a little bit about the book of Hosea. But as, as the introduction shows us when reading the beginning there, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri," And so that tells us a little bit about who he is. And it says where he was or in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so all of these people there were kings of Judah. So we see four different kings. And then in the days of Jeroboam, of uh, uh, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so what we find here is God giving us an explanation of when um, Hosea was preaching, when Hosea was prophesying, when Hosea was communicating the word of the Lord that God had given him. And so it was about a span of, over, of around 45 years, and Hosea came from the northern kingdom, which is Israel, because at the time that Hosea was born, the, the kingdom of of Israel, remember after Solomon, when his son came into power, the kingdom of Israel was split into two things, the northern and southern regions. And so the northern region, that's Israel. And then the southern region was Judah. And so he was born and he began to prophesy in the northern kingdom. And the reason why we know is because as we look through the book, we understand that it was before this book was written, before God let his judgment come upon his people because of their disobedience before they were overtaken by Syria in a place of judgment. He prophesied. Prophesied to Judah and uh, and Israel for about 45 years. So it was from about 755 BC to 710 BC. So when you look at that, that's a pretty long time. That's 45 years. So you would wonder, why is it? I don't know if you wonder, but I wonder. I'm like, well, why do they call this a minor prophet? Hello. They're like major prophets and minor prophets. There's some people that are major, like they really got some deep revelation. Some people are just minor. They got minor revelation, right? Is that what it is? (laughs) I'm just saying, what makes a book major and minor? Well, it's the length of the book. That's what it is. It has nothing to do with the power of the prophecies. The prophecies are equally powerful. They're just not as lengthy. And so he's one of the minor prophets here. And so he prophesied for all that time, and obviously, I'm sure in a 45-year span, he probably spoke more things than just a few, you know, um, communications that we have here in these 14 chapters throughout this book. And so what happens is his ministry was not by any means minor, but Hosea's name literally means salvation. This is important because we see the work of God's salvation. Again, he preached to the northern kingdom, but what he did is when he started to preach, he started to preach during a time that they were in great prosperity. They were doing wonderful. Everything seemed so good when he started to preach. Everything was going well for them. But there was a problem with Israel. They began to turn their hearts away from God, and they started to worship idols. They started to make dependence on other nations and other gods rather than them seeking God. And so why is this important for us? Because what happens to us is we have choices to make. We can either follow what the Scriptures say, which is to have no other gods before our God. We can follow what the Bible teaches and make God our dependence or we can give into the systems that are around us and we can begin to depend on other things rather than God, not bringing glory and honor to him the way that we should. And so what God calls us to do is to look at this as an example of some things that we should not do. So as he is preaching, as he's prophesying, the nation begins to, it's rotting away inwardly, and it's involved with these foreign alliances. But it started off looking great, and then before you know it, you see that God begins to um, allow the children of Israel to experience his judgment against them because of their disobedience. Hosea shows us a clear picture as his name is salvation, how salvation has nothing to do with us, but it is a picture of his grace. Someone say amen to that. Salvation has nothing to do with us, but it is a picture of his grace. So I ask you to repeat this after me. This is the first point that we'll make. It is that we may never understand how God chooses his people, but we know why. And we should rejoice that he chooses us. Now let me say this again. We may never understand how God chooses his people. We may never understand that, but we, but we do understand why. The Bible says it clearly, it is for his glory, amen? That is it. He does it for his glory. We don't understand how he makes these choices. We, I'm not even going to get into that because I can't take you to a bunch of scriptures and show you. This is exactly how it happens. All that I know is that our God foreknows all of us, Amen. He knows every one of the decisions that we will make before we make them. And because he is God, he knows the end from the beginning, right? And so we realize that he makes these choices. And so we will never understand how exactly those choices are made, but we know that they are made for his glory and for our good. But here's the most beautiful part, is that while a lot of people get caught up in how and why, we should just rejoice that we are chosen by him. We should rejoice that he's calling us. And let me put it to you like this. If you are sitting here today and you know Jesus, you can consider yourself chosen because when Paul writes, he doesn't sit there and say, well, you're chosen, you're chosen. He writes to the church and he said to the chosen one, to the elect of God. That's what he communicates. Now, if you're sitting in this place and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that there is no mistake that you're sitting here because Jesus wants you to know him. He wants you to turn from your sin unto his saving power. And so no one in this place is exempt, but he Here is the reality. There are some people that will sit in this place. You don't know Jesus. You will hear the gospel message that is preached today, and you will leave here unchanged because your heart is hard, and you don't think you need God. But here's what happens. Because you are hearing the gospel, you are accountable to God for what you're hearing. And for those of us that are here, we we, we need to look. Look, Paul makes it clear. He's like, you need to check yourself. You need to continue to examine yourself. Make sure that you are in the faith. He's saying this to Christians. The Bible teaches us that we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the other reality. The other reality is that there are people that are in here. You think you know Jesus, but you do not. And my hope is that as you hear the gospel preach, that you will turn from your sin, that you will recognize that you are separated from him and that you will be reconciled unto him in a relationship today. He loves us. And what we see in this book is that we don't understand. The first thing we look, look, look at, the, I don't know about you, but when God speaks to me the first time, like, I don't want to hear this. Look, look, look at verse two of me. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take a wife of harlotry. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, y'all can laugh because God, you know, I, I forget. it. So somebody was praying today and they were talking about, God, you know, you have a sense of humor. I think it was Rob Guzman or something like that. He was like, he, he said, you know, God, I thank you for your humor. And I'm like, this is hilarious. I am glad it is not me. He is saying, go and take. Listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying, go take a wife that's going to be a prostitute. Is that the first thing you want to hear from God? Like, everybody wants to hear, look, go buy that big, nice house, or go, that car is yours, or you got that promotion, or, you know, the, go preach the gospel. Maybe some of y'all want to hear that. But to hear, um, the first thing God says, son, go take a wife that's a prostitute. That's hard. I don't, know, I don't know about you. See, some of y'all ain't laughing, but that is crazy right there. I would not want to hear that. Not only doesn't stop there, he's like, and children of heart so not only is your wife, okay, going to be a prostitute, but your children are going to be like her too, I know know you want to hear a prosperity message. I'm just saying, this is what he said. (laughs) He said, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So the first thing that God says, he commands him to marry a wife of harlotry. And there's three possible meanings here to this thing. And this is important, I I mean, for me to understand what he's saying. And the first one is, take a prostitute as your wife. That's the first one that he could be saying. The reason why that wouldn't be right is because then Hosea would have no right to get upset later on because he knew he was getting a prostitute. Hello. That's the first thing. The second possible answer is take any woman from the land of harlotry, which I think that's part of the answer of what he's trying to say. They were living in a land of harlotry, so anyone that he would have taken would have been that one. But then there's a, third, there's a third one, which is really the point, and it is this. Go and marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you. That's what he's saying. So y'all ain't y'all getting this because uh-huh, you, you didn't hear that. That's why. You didn't hear. God didn't tell you that stuff. But let me ask you this. Would you marry? Think about this for a moment. Just time out. Let's, let, let, let's, let, let's step back for a second. Let's get real spiritual for a moment, amen? Would you have married the person you married if God said, marry that person and they're gonna be unfaithful to you? Listen, some of y'all are holding that scripture that Jesus said over the person's head. I'm just saying. You ever, I won't divorce you, except. I'm just saying. Now listen, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to talk. What I'm. What I'm saying is, none of us. None of us would have been like, "Oh, your God, glory to God, hallelujah." I'm going to die. None of us would have done that. But Hosea, <laughs> Hosea was in a position that God was saying, look, I want you to do this. So Hosea goes and he obeys. And the Bible says that he goes and he marries this woman by the name of Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him sons. And so while we may never fully understand the meaning of take a wife of harlotry, I think that we got a pretty clear picture. What we are assured of is that Gomer left her husband and three children to follow after other lovers as a prostitute. Look at chapter 3. Just turn there real quick. Turn to chapter 3. We're going to work through chapters 1 through 3 today. We're going to read all these scriptures together. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, speaking to Hosea, Go again. Say, go again. Go again. The, the reason why that's important for you to realize is because he's making a point. He's saying, go do this again. He's, he's not talking about somebody different, okay? He's saying, go again. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover. And is committing adultery just like the love, j- just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took who, who who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. So it's crystal clear. We may not understand all that, but what we know is this is that whatever God said, that's what happened, unfortunately. Hosea was able to experience the heartbreak that God experiences every time that we are unfaithful to him. Did you hear what I just said? The reason why God chose Hosea for this is because he said, I want you to be a picture to the children of Israel of what my relationship with them looks like. I am loving them exceedingly, abundantly. I am loving them unconditionally. I have given them. You're going to see some things when we read through these prophecies. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was amazed when I was reading through these things and what God was saying. And listen, I want to make this clear. This is not a bust on the children of Israel. This just happens to be in the Old Testament. And so we're dealing with God's covenant people in the old testament israel this is us this is the way oh we'll get to that point in a moment hallelujah he gives him this responsibility the picture is of a god who chooses us despite us hallelujah he loves us not because we are lovable but solely because he is love he doesn't he doesn't love us because we're so gifted or so talented or so cute or so amazing or so whatever. We love our kids because of that stuff. Hello You know, we we love I mean we love them because they're our children, but you know, they do certain things that are cute and all that. And 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 it motivates us, but God doesn't love us because we're like that. He rescues us even when we have no desire for him, and prove not only to be undeserving of his mercy, but ill-deserving of his mercy. We're gonna read these scriptures. Look at chapter one, verse ten through eleven. Let's read some of these scriptures and then I'm gonna I'm gonna make that point again. Chapter one, verses ten and eleven. It said, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said again to them, You are the sons of the living God. Then that then the children of Israel, then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head that they shall come up out of the land. And so you'll see, because we're going to look back at these other verses in between here but what you're noticing here is that God speaks judgment. You don't see that yet, but God speaks judgment from verses 4 to verse 9. But then in verse 10, he begins to declare his love and his kindness. And look at chapter 2, verse 14 to verse 23. Again, from chapters 1, I mean from verses 1 all the way down to verse 13, it's talking about his judgments. It's talking about their rebellion. And then in verse 14 through 23, it says this. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will allure her will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her so while we've been rebellious he's going to speak comfort to us i will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope he's giving us hope shall sing she shall sing there he's going to give us a song of worship as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of egypt so he's going to let us feel the liberty he's going to let the children of israel here feel the liberty that they felt when they came up out of the land of egypt And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And so look at that. He wants to switch a relational position where it's not just him as Lord, not just him as master, but him as husband, him as relational, him as one that loves. That's what he wants to do here. And he says, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baal. So he's going to liberate them from their worship of false gods, and they shall be remembered by their name, by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them. With the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And so are they worthy of any of this? No, absolutely not. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with, new, with oil, with, they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself into the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And so he shows this picture, and he gives us this picture. And here's the thing. He, I said this. He rescues us when we have no desire for him and prove not only to be undeserving of his mercy but ill-deserving of his mercy. Now, let me explain the difference to you between being undeserving and being ill-deserving. And the way that I picture this is if I have my child and I tell my child to take the garbage out, and my child says no, and they just don't take it out, that and, and then you know they want to go to a theme park or something like that, then and I say, Yes, I did something for someone who was undeserving. I said, Listen, I want you to do this, and you refuse to do this. Now, this is what would make my child ill deserving. If I tell my child to take the garbage out and they go and they take the garbage and they dump it all over the house and say, I will never take the garbage out, I will never do what you say, and then I decide, Well, I'm gonna take him to the theme park anyway. Now, most of us are like, Bishop, you're crazy. You're right. That would be a crazy scenario. But can I tell you something? That is the way that we are against God. We are ill deserving of his mercy. We are ill-deserving of his grace because not only does he tell us what to do and we refuse to do it, but we rebel against him. We disobey what he says for us to do. We don't do those things and we go against him with our own hearts when we're unwilling to forgive other people, when we're unwilling to share the gospel, when we're unwilling to obey his scriptures, and when we continue to go against what he says, we become ill-deserving. We become the same way, just as, just as Gomer was, because Gomer was like, hey, you know, she's got a, she's got a husband, her husband is there, and she decides that she doesn't want to be married to him anymore. She decides that she has three children with him, she's going to bounce and she's going to leave. Second thing, ask you to repeat this after me, is this, say, being chosen, being chosen. By, God by God is not an excuse, not an excuse. for wayward living. Being chosen by God, and I'm going to deal with this more next week and the following week, but I want to point this out because these are in the scriptures that we're looking at. If you look at verses 4 through 9 with me here, in verse 4 it says this, it says, Then the Lord said to him, and that this is after she bore him the, the, the first child, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6 says, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow nor, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lorumah, she conceived and bore a son, then God said, "Call His name Lo am for you are not my people, and I will not be your God." And so what God does here is he begins to speak this judgment against them, right? Now look at verse chapter two. In verse one, we'll look at verses one through 13 here. He says, for great, for, for great will be the day of Jezreel. In verse, verse 2 and verse 1, it says, So to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for, ye, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them, has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. And so look at what happens here. Israel is saying this. This this is the picture, is that I'm going after other gods. And and, and I don't know if you remember the story, but if, if you remember in the book of Exodus, the Bible says that when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he was up there, the children of Israel got tired of waiting for him. And when they got tired of waiting for him, they said to Aaron, listen, we don't know about this, Moses, but you need to make us gods that are going to go before us. And so they are just witnessed. Now listen, I I don't know if you know this, but the book of Exodus, when you look at all of those 10 plagues that the children of Israel saw happening when they were in the land of Egypt, every one of those plagues was in contradiction to a deity of 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 the Egyptians. And so what was happening was when God goes and he brings darkness, this is just one example. When he brings that heavy darkness on the land, what he was saying is your God, Ra, that is the sun God, the one, that controls light he has no power in my sight and i'm gonna make it i'm gonna make it pitifully dark and so the next plague that i'll give you an example of when they when they went ahead and they had the 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 frogs remember the frogs were coming out all over the place well you know frogs and alligators aren't supposed to get along too well hello And so the Nile, they had this alligator, crocodile God. And and what happened was God was saying, that ain't no God. I'm going to show you these frogs are more powerful than all of these gods that you're supposed to have. And so what happens is the children of Israel saw this. They saw God himself liberating. They saw God himself delivering them. They saw God himself confronting the gods of the nation of of, of Egypt. And they still began to rebel. And so they come and they say, well, you know what? We we don't know about this Moses, but we need gods to go before us. And so the Bible says that they did what? That they went and they took their earrings off. They took their jewelry off. And then when they put it in the fire and melted, and then, you know, Aaron goes ahead and he makes them these gods. And then what the scriptures here are saying is that when, when he's talking about going after other lovers, what he is saying there is, he is communicating the language of idolatrous worship. Because whenever we worship something else, we are idolaters and then God, and we'll see it in the New Testament as well, God calls that adultery. When we worship other gods, and see, the gods of our days may not be Baal, but the God of our day can be our job. The God of our day can be our children. The God of our day can be our spouse. The God of our day can be anything. It can be our car, our clothes. It can be our name. It can be popularity. It can be whatever it is. Our God can be our religion rather than the God who saved us. Our God can be our doctrine, the things that we believe, rather than the God that we're supposed to be pointing to. And we think that those are the things, and that's the reason why I say it is so important that we do not look at our Bible as just a moral checklist for us because we will miss the God that empowers us to be moral. As a matter of fact, when I look at the Bible the way that Paul said it, he made it clear. He said the law was not evil, but I would not have known what coveting was unless the law said not to covet. And so what's supposed to happen is when I look at the laws of God, I realize how sinful I am. Because I realize those are his standards and he is a holy God. And I'm not living those standards the way that he declares that I should be. Verse 6 says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in. Now, look at this. Even in this judgment, God is showing mercy. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. So what is he doing? He is saying, look, I'm going to do everything that I can, even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of you reaping what you've sown. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you from running after other gods. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say... I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. Now, I want you to, when I read this, uh, the first time that I read this through, I was reading it through Bible.is, and or I was listening as, as Bible.is was reading it. And the way that the, the, the reader reads that part is with sarcasm. Because it's like she's saying, I want to go worship other gods, but you know what? It was better being with him. I, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you, if you understand what I'm saying. What, what we're talking about returning to God And what she was saying with sarcasm in that moment was, you know what? I can't get to these guys. I can't get to these other things that I want. So you know what? I'm going to go back over here. Not because I really want to, but I really have no choice. It was better being there than where I am now. Horrible heart. Goes on to verse 8. For she did not know. This is why she said that. Look at verse 8. He is so amazing. For she did not know that I gave her grain new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which she prepared for Baal. God provided all of those things, and she was blind to that. She was worshiping another God with God's provision. That's crazy. She was worshiping another God. She was adoring. She was, oh, I got this wine, and you know what? I'm going to worship you. And guess what? God gave you that. It's just like us with all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our abilities, all of our money. We worship with, with, with the things that God gives us. We, all of us worship. But we worship what? Are we really worshiping him? Or are we worshiping other things? We're giving all of our best. We're giving all of our strength. to so what? Are we giving it to him for his kingdom and his glory? Or are we giving it to other things? Verse 9 says, therefore, I will return and take her away, and take away my grain in its time. So finally, God is responding, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. So God is saying there is going to be judgment. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I need you to see this picture here because what he is saying here is he's saying these people still think that I'm okay with them. These people still have new moons. Those are, those, those are Jewish feasts. They still have their Sabbaths. Those are, Jew, those are Jewish feasts. They still have all of these festivals in the name of their God. And so what they're doing is they are going and worshiping other gods. It's, like, it's, it's kind of like this. We worship everything else from Monday to Saturday, and then Sunday we want to come and lift our hands like everything is okay. That is what he's communicating here. He's saying, I'm going to take this away so that they realize that their worship is impure, so that they realize that they are not right with me. And why does he do this? Because he loves us. Why does he do this? Because he doesn't want us to experience eternal separation from him, but he wants us to experience reconciliation with him and real relationship. And he says in verse 12, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will take, so I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. In chapter 2, you'll, or in chapter 1, you see the prophetic imagery that's given in the naming of Hosea's children. He, gets, he has three children. They have three different names. The first one is the name Jezreel. And that name means God sows or it means God scatters. And what this was is that this was a prophecy. This was God prophesied about the scattering of Israel throughout the nations. Also, we know that there was a judgment that was proclaimed there that was going to happen because of Jehu being too extreme when he was bringing um, judgment to Ahab's house. But the first thing is, the first judgment is that rather than you having a land of your own, rather than you having all of these promises, you're going to be scattered throughout the nations. So things are going to be really hard for you. The second thing he says, the second one, the daughter, her name is is lo Ruhama, and her name means no mercy, or she hasn't found compassion. And this prophesied how God would allow Israel to suffer at the hands of their enemies for their sins. Because for some reason we think that, you know what, we're not going to experience anything. We're not going to experience any hardship. We continue to do wrong. But God says, no, 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 it's not like that. There are going to be times that we're going to experience things if we are rebelling against him. I'm not talking about when you fall short. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living and rebellion against God. That is a totally different thing. Living a life that is not honoring him, this is what we have to look forward to. And the last child's name is Loamai, and it means not my people. And so the last verse, if, if, you look at, if you look at verse 8 with me, or verse 9, I'm sorry. It says, then call his name Loamai. For you are not my people, right? So that's what his name means, that you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now, when you literally look up that last, that last phrase there, what it literally says is this. It says, I am, not I am, to you. I am, not I am, to you. Now, why is that so important? Because when you go back to Exodus, you'll remember when Moses said, who do I say sent me? He says, say, I am that I am sent you. And what he's saying here is, he's saying, I am not I am to you. Not because I don't want to be I am, but because you reject me as I am. You reject me as the God of creation. You reject me as the Lord. You reject me as the one who is your leader. So because you reject me, I'm not the I am to you. The prophecies against Israel were the product of its own hypocrisy and rebellion against the Lord who willed their best, but they desired to serve other gods to gain what only God the Father could give them. And so again, they're running after other gods, making allegiance to other gods, other nations, rather than recognizing that all that they need is in him. We must look at these warnings and consider the implications for us because even as his children, there are always consequences for sin. Usually, it is broken relationships. Whenever you sin, most of the time, what you will see is your sin will cause breaking in relationships. Your sin will alter relationships. You sin, people don't trust you. You lie, people don't trust you. You treat someone wrong, people don't trust you. You're unjust, people don't. And so relationships begin to be broken. We don't want that, but that's the reality. That's the truth. It takes time. But, you know, forgiveness isn't just overnight. Hello. You know, and I can forgive you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust you tomorrow, right? Amen. I mean, that's just how it is. Well, I thought you forgave me. I did forgive you, but I need to make sure you're not going to do that again. Hello. I'm just saying. That's called wisdom, right? I, I don't know. I think that that's called wisdom. It doesn't mean I hold it over your head. It doesn't mean I remind you every time we get together, well, you in what you did. That's not what I'm saying. That is not, that's not the right heart. That is not the right mindset. But forgiveness is something that happens. God says forgive and we forgive, but you know what? You got to earn trust. When we sin, relationship is broken. But here's the beauty is that God is rich in his mercy and he never allows repentant children to experience the fullness of what they deserve. Are you hearing me? So here's the thing. This is, this is real truth. This is hard truth. But the reality is, God, if we are repentant before God, if we are humble before our God, He doesn't want us to experience the fullness of what we deserve. Listen, I can guarantee you that there's this thing called mercy. Hello, that is new every day according to the Bible. And, 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 and what mercy means, mercy means not receiving what you deserve. That's what it means. That's what mercy is. The difference between mercy and grace is that mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And I promise you that everyone in this room, that, I don't even care if you've trusted Jesus or not. Trust me when I tell you, no one has experienced the fullness of what they deserve. No, no None of us have experienced the fullness of what we deserve because of our rebellion against God. He is gracious to us, and he is merciful to to us. And as we looked at this picture of God, you know, hedging Israel in and doing everything he could not to allow them to overtake their lovers, is that God will do everything that he can to turn us to himself before we experience the external, the eternal consequences of hell, separation from him. He will do everything that he can to turn us to him. The third thing that I ask you to repeat after me is this, say, we must guard against becoming. Adulterers Adulterers. like Gomer Gomer. and Israel. Israel. The fact is, none of us wants to hear this. None of us wants to believe this. But all of us have adulterous hearts like, like Gomer. As a matter of fact, until we recognize this, we will never fully grasp the depth of our sinfulness, nor the immensity of God's loving kindness. See, the truth of the matter is, is that our hearts are wicked in and of themselves. God comes to save us and give us a new heart. But when you read your Bible and you see Paul, he talks about this other law that is at work in him. And what he's saying is that there is this battle that is constantly going on. There is this pull We were at this at the Thanksgiving service for those of you that were able to make it. And there was a song that we were singing. And in the song, you know, it was one of the I guess it was an older hymn, I'm sure. I've never heard it before. But there was one thing in that hymn that I was like, man, I don't really like that part, but it's really true. And it says, My heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to wandering. And if we're honest, our hearts are prone to wandering. Yes, we have our high moments with Jesus. Yes, we have those times that, man, nothing could separate us from being in his presence, and we would do nothing to dishonor him. But then if we're real, we have those moments that, man, we are not faithful to him the way that we should be. And the Bible says this, anyone who says he doesn't have sin, you make God to be a liar. That's what the Bible says. That's not what I said. That's what 1 John tells us. Anyone who says they do not have sin, they make God to be a liar. Now tell me who's a liar, you or God? All of us have to guard our hearts against becoming adulterers. And when I say adulterers, we have to guard our hearts against becoming adulterers in action. Because in our hearts, we have to constantly repent of that. Now, I want to look at this. I want to look at some New Testament stuff because I want to bring this to the New Testament. The New Testament apostles warned the church against spiritual harlotry, which is also known as adultery, which is equal to idolatry. And so when you worship idols, that is considered a a, a spiritual adultery is what God calls that. And so turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4. And we'll start here. The book of James chapter 4. You got to say amen. It says this. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously, but he who gives more, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, where did I just read this from? your bible who was the bible who was the bible written to to the church now listen when i was reading that some of you were offended some of you were like man i'm not an adulterer i'm not an adulteress man i'm not a sinner and i'm not like that hold on a second so you're saying god is wrong See, the reason why I say this is because sometimes we think that we don't need to hear the truth about our sinfulness. But the reality is, Paul, I mean, I mean James is writing here to the church, and he's warning them against this exact thing that Gomer does that Israel is doing in this in, in this Old Testament picture of the gospel. He is warning us. He is calling us adulterers and, and, and adulterers because what happens is he says this. He says, you ask and do not receive in verse 3 because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here is the thing. James 4, 1 through 10 makes it clear that we battle within ourselves and we either repent or we give into our fleshly desires and begin to literally pray for things with worldly motivations. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, he's, the, the next thing he says, adulterers, adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? You and I make ourselves enemy when we love this world, when we love the accolades of this world, when we love the desires that this world, the things that, or the offer, should I say, that this world gives us, when we love those things more than him, when we pursue those things more than we pursue holiness and righteousness, more than we seek him, when we do those things, we make ourselves enemies with God but please hear me he is talking to the church this wasn't a letter that like went to some worldly people and then crept back into the church no James makes it clear in the beginning who's he writing to he's writing to all of the 12 tribes that are spread throughout you know Asia and all that he, with the area where the church was he's writing to them And he's making it crystal clear, this is the heart condition that we have. And so we must guard ourselves continually. That's the reason, listen church, that is the reason why relationship with others is so vital. And when I say relationship with others, I mean other Christians that are godly, hello. I'm not talking about finding a group of people that you can hang out that have the same moral issues you do and just be like, look, man, just patting each other on the back like it's going to be okay. No, you need godly people who will call you to the carpet and say you are pursuing worldliness. You are pursuing ungodly things that are going to take you away from God. You need godly people who with tears in their eyes will tell you that the ways that you are walking in are ungodly. You need those people who will recognize when you are mistreating your spouse and they will lovingly come to you and say that is not becoming of a man or a woman of God you need someone who will lovingly communicate to you when you are mistreating your children or you are not spending time with them and let you know that is not the way the scriptures teach you need people who will talk to you and when you say foolishness who will lovingly correct you but if you are not in community you will never have anyone tell you that you need that community in your life. You need those people in your life. You need those people who don't, listen, I'm not just talking about coming together on a Tuesday or a Saturday or a Sunday. That is weak community. I've told you before, those are just, situ- those are just times that we get together, events that happen. I'm talking about being in real relationship with people. I'm talking about spending time with them outside of, you know, you, know, you need godly people that will tell you, man, that show is not God that you're watching. Hello. Straight up, you need that. I need that. Amen. Glory to God. I'm just letting you know. I need that. I need that. I need you. We we need people who'll be like, man, you watch that. I ain't judging you, but I'm, well, I am. But I'm saying, <laughs> to the spiritual, all things right are subject to judgment. But you need godly people in your life. Why? Oh, because watching a, watching a program or watching a movie is going to send you to hell. No. That program or that movie is not going to send you to hell, but the seed that it's sowing in your life may. That's the problem with us, is that we think we can just watch and do and just do whatever we want to do. But that's not the truth, church. The first thing he tells us in James says we need to warrant, be warned against this. Turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. And this scripture piggybacks on the one in the book of James. I just wanted you to see the Bible says that every word be established by two or three witnesses. So I'm giving you two different apostles, James and John. And so John says this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, if you love the world, these are not my words. These are the words of your Bible. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eye, The lust of the flesh and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so, John is not saying that if you do what God wants, then that's a guarantee to salvation. What he is saying is save people, do what God wants. That's what he's saying. He's saying people that have been redeemed, they do the will of God. People who have come to know the Savior do the will of the Savior. That's the bottom line. But there is the other thing. It is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And what John is saying is, look, those are the things that are in the world. When you find yourself living off of what you see, when you find yourself living off of what you feel, when you find yourself living off of what you have a right to, see, that's the lust of the eye, that's the lust of the flesh, and that's the pride of life, you can do it because you work all those out so you have a right to do it or you do that. So you have a right to do it when you start living that way Instead of living the way the bible says then you are a person who is loving the world That's what the scriptures teach us And if the love of the father is not in us that means that we are separated from him So it warns us against loving the world because our hearts. Why does this matter? Why are these people writing this to the church? Why are they writing this to people that congregate? Why are they writing this to people that worship? Why are they writing this to people that probably knew the Bible better than you and I? Why is it? It is because we are all wicked in our core. It is because we need to be constantly reminded to war against those things that will pull our hearts away from our God. And the last place, I won't have you turn there, but you can just write this one down, is the book of Revelation chapter 2. And I won't have you turn there because we turned there a couple of weeks ago. But the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that is the, that is the rebuke of Jesus to the church of Ephesus. And you know what the scripture says there. It says that God knows their work. He knows their labor. He knows their toil. He knows that they, you know, have tried those who call themselves apostles and are not. He said that, you know, you, you maintain sound doctrine. This was a sound doctrine church. They, they, they are a solid church when it comes to Bible. And yet he tells them something. He says that he has this issue with them. And it is that they have turned from their first love. And so what was their issue? What idol were they running after? They were running after God's approval. They were were running after piety, they were running after godliness, but they were lacking love. And so see, it's not just about me loving the things of the world, it's not just about me loving those other things. I can love good stuff and not love God more and have a problem. And so the question for us is this, these, or, or, or the reality is, these warnings should sober our hearts as we look at Hosea remembering that we by nature are no different than Gomer Yet, God chose us. Now listen, that should be the encouraging part of my message. It is that God knows that we are adulterers and adulteresses at heart. He knows this. He knows every sin that I'm going to commit between now and the day that I die. He knows everywhere that I am going to fail and fall short. He knows all of those things. And he doesn't excuse them. He died for them. See, there is a difference. He doesn't just say, oh, it's okay, just go on ahead and sin. No, no, no. What he says is, he says that he died for them. And what he goes on to say in the book of Hebrews, if you read your Bible, it tells you that he who sins willfully, there is no longer a sacrifice for him. Those are some scary words there. Because if, I, if I'm calling myself a Christian and I'm living how I want to live and I'm sinning willfully and I continue to sin against God and sin against God, there's no sacrifice for me. You know what that tells me? That language tells me that there is no hope for me. And so listen, if you are that person that is sinning willfully against God, your hope is today to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin. And listen, for all of us, we should rejoice because what? Because God chose us. He chose us. He chose us despite us. He chose us knowing every failure. And so that's my encouragement for us today. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet and bow your heads, please. Here's the question again. Are you overwhelmed that God chose you by grace? Think about that. Are you overwhelmed that God chose you by grace? Are you overwhelmed that he knows every wicked thing? that you've ever done, every wicked thing you will ever do, and he still chooses you. Has that overwhelmed your heart? Has that overwhelmed your heart? And the second part of that question is, does your devotion to him match that answer? Father, I come to you right now. I pray with our brothers and sisters in this place. God, we all fall short. That is not a question. That is a reality. But we know that you grant more grace, God. We know that you grant us strength, God. Father, help us who know you, God, to continue to fight this good fight. Help us who know you, God, to continue to run this race that is set before us. Help us who know you, God, to be faithful to your call of obedience and submission to you. Father, I pray for those in this place that don't know you, God, whether they think they do or whether they are 100% assured that they do not. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict their hearts right now. I pray that you would fill them with love for you. I pray that you would fill them with a desire to serve you. I pray that you would fill them with a hunger for your righteousness. I pray that they would come to the hopeless reality, my God, that apart from repenting of their sins, turning away from their sins and putting their faith, trusting and hoping in you, Lord God, let them come to that reality that they realize that they have no hope, my God. Father, I pray that you would fill them with grace to turn from sin. Fill them with grace to trust you, God. Father, I pray that you glorify your name in us. Help us, God, to be overwhelmed by the magnitude and the purity of your love. We thank you for this, and we give you all praise in Jesus' good name. Someone said?